When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started with this week's episode, I just wanted to jump in really quick because I'm super excited. My whole team's super excited. This week, we printed issue three of the Good Newspaper, and we are so proud of it. It looks good, in my opinion. I've got it right here in front of me. Um, I don't know if you can hear me opening up the newspaper, but we've got a story of how more women are running for office than ever before and why that's really good for the world. We have, for those of you who are sports fans, a miniature sports section for the first time ever in partnership with our friends at Sports Doing Good. We have, oh my goodness, this is great. The number of convictions for human trafficking is rising. That is, oh, that's such good news. What else do we got here? Oh, we've got this amazing story on this incredible woman. Her name is Ilwad Elman, and she is changing Somalia from the inside out. You got to read the paper to find out more. Goodness gracious, I'm just so excited about this. This is <laughs> this is so fun. You can order issue three of the good newspaper at shop.goodgoodgood.co. We would love for you to get this in your mailbox. So be one of the first people to get it by ordering it right now. Shop.goodgoodgood.co. All right, enjoy the podcast. I love this quote from this week's podcast guest. She said, I've learned that even in the midst of brokenness, love heals. Love heals is the principle that has shaped the way I've tried to live my life. I've tried to make room for that healing through gratitude, awareness, and acceptance. I think those words perfectly encapsulate who this week's podcast guest is. Her name is Becca Stevens. And Becca Stevens is an author, speaker, social entrepreneur, and the founder and president of Thistle Farms. After the death of her father when she was a kid and the subsequent child abuse she experienced when she was only five years old, Becca longed to open a sanctuary for survivors, offering them a loving community and a safe space. In 1997, five women who had experienced trafficking, violence, and addiction were welcomed home. 20 years later, Thistle Farms continues to welcome women with free residence that offers housing, medical care, therapy, and education for two years. Becca has been featured in the New York Times, on ABC World News, and NPR, and she was recently named by CNN as one of the 2016 Heroes of the Year, as well as, under the Obama White House, a champion of change. Today, I am so honored to have Becca Stevens, truly one of my local Nashville heroes, as a guest on this podcast. I am Brendan Harvey, and this podcast is Sounds Good. This is the weekly show where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Let's dive right in. So I started visiting Nashville maybe six years ago now, and when I first started coming to Nashville, I started noticing this word thistle farms everywhere I went. And you guys have been everywhere. You've been a staple of the community for a long time now. 
And so I'm just honored to to be here in this room with you right now. Thank you. I'm happy that we're getting, you know, to be like Google or the Opry where people start hearing about us before they even meet us, that it's just out there. It's really funny because, you know, you walk into any restaurant in Nashville and you go into the bathroom, you wash your hands and, you know, you've got some Disselbarm's hand soap and you've got some lotion. But then I started traveling the country more and more and I started seeing it in other spots too. And so Nashville's the hub, but, you know, y'all are everywhere. I know, and it's it's growing exponentially. It just reminds you that there is an economy of love out there mm. and that when people can latch on to hope and love, they can grow a good business too, that yeah. those aren't you know antithetical, that you can be lavish and economical and loving and not give up your ideals. And also I think it's a big, God, it's kind of freeing. Like I'm in so many meetings where marketing and branding are the whole freaking conversation. You know, that even around yeah. justice work and even around – advocacy on the on social media and everybody wants to talk about okay you have to rebrand you have to hone in your story you have to blah 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 and it's like it, it's exhausting to me it's yeah. like i much rather have salespeople than marketing people sometimes but somehow thistle farms has gotten into people's conscience yeah and love heals is a pretty simple way of telling the story and so when people are saying, like, you need to hone the story, you need to hone the mission, you need to... And I'm like, <laughs> I feel like we're doing okay. Yeah, truly. Well, let's, you know, for people who are new to what Thistle Farms is, and, and maybe they haven't been to Nashville and walked into a bathroom and seen, you know, the things you guys create, let's give a little bit of context. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. What year did you start Thistle Farms? We started with one house. Um, opening to five women who are all survivors of trafficking, addiction, and prostitution in 1997. 1997. So 21 years ago. Wow. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Oh, I don't care. (laughs) Unless I know how old I am. You can absolutely tell me how old you are. Well, in 1997, I would have been five years old. Right. And that's my kid's age. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, my first son was born in 91. Okay, perfect. There we go. Yeah. I was born in 92. There you go. Um, that first year that you started this house, what was your kind of expertise at the time going into this? What was your background? What kind of led you to this moment? I know, and I love that I don't have any, really. I mean, I'm an Episcopal <laughs> priest. I got ordained the same year I had my first son, so I was an Episcopal priest. And I had been working in the field of justice. I've been a survivor of childhood sexual abuse myself, so I guess that gives you some expertise. But I was also pretty aware that I hated the way that we were warehousing women for recovery. Hmm. Like, all the homeless women need to line up here. This is your shirt. This is where you go. It just felt violent. Yeah. Very, like, systematic almost. Yeah. Well, it was warehousing. And so I kept thinking, like, what I wanted to do was really just have one house for five women and just say, you know, nobody will live in this house. Nobody will charge you anything. It's just your home. It's not a halfway house. It's not a treatment center. It's not a shelter. Just come and live and figure out what you need for healing from each other and from me, and I'll help you. That's amazing. Well, it's easy. I mean, it's a really old-school model of community. And, again, it's like if you can trust that community can do the work and community can heal, great things happen. You know, you don't have to have an expert and everything come in. People know how to love. People know that they desire healing. You know, I mean, we have to trust each other in a community. So the women came in, and it just went really well. So we opened up another house, opened up another (laughs) house, opened up another house. And then it was like, we're so good about talking about love and healing and women and advocates. I mean, this is long before hashtag me too, long before 
I mean, you at that point, you couldn't even have a major in social entrepreneurship mm. or those kinds of businesses. But we knew that if we wanted to love women, we had to be about economic empowerment. Yeah. So that's why we started the Justice Enterprise, named it Thistle Farms, and this was back in 2000. And we just started rolling from there. And so in the beginning, there was no social enterprise to it. It was just a house that you bought or rented or whatever, and people just kind of came together. And then the goal was to start giving these people opportunities and to grow. Is that right? Yeah, and we shy away from these people. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. It's just that it's all of us. I mean, we're all a part of the story because, you know, I personally, I haven't met a woman in the 21 years I've done this work that hasn't been raped who got to the streets by themselves. It took a whole bunch of dysfunctional communities and systems, people who... um, you know, don't take into consideration when they download pornography what that does to the person, a lot of times minors, having that done to them. It's all of our story, and it really Mm. takes a community to help welcome women home. So what I like to think of is we're all coming together to do the healing work we all need to do, but it's not about ever helping a subculture of women. It's about really changing how we have been a part of a community that still treats women as commodities. That's incredible. I love that discrepancy, that that difference of how you think about it. Yeah, break that down even more for okay. me almost because okay. I, I almost want to hear more thoughts on on how we can shift the way that we talk and the way that we act in that regard because we are all so connected. Well, part of it is remembering that we all have – and this is just how I feel. You know, we all have a lot more in common than we have not in common. Like whatever category – You might put me in because of my age or my sex or my background or, you know, all these things. I'm a priest. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm from the South. I'm from the North. I mean, we do these things to each other, and it's like you're different, you're separate. And it's a challenge, by the way, for all of us. And um, you're a Trump supporter, so I cannot possibly have this conversation with you. Or, thank God. You know, you like horseback riding. That's We have something <laughs> in common. So we have all these ways that we categorize each other and become they and we and all that stuff. But what I really want to do is say, you know, like the line between priest and prostitute is nothing. You know, it's infinitesimally small. And that we can be a community and we can tell a story and we can come together. And that's how we've done the work. It's like, just remember it's your story. How will anybody goes from being five years old abused or raped to 14 years old on the street to 21 years old in prison. That's part of our story. And I love that. And to say, like, I'm with you in prison. I'm with you when you come out and we're with you into wholeness. And it's also kind of a reminder that this world is so unfair for some folks, for all of us or some of us or whatever you want to say. And that when we connect you know, it's not about fairness anymore, but it is about compassion and justice. And so how do we connect? How do we stay together so it's better for everybody? And how do we do that? What kind of solutions can we be creating to do that? Or even more specifically, how are you doing that? Yeah, and I'd love to hear what you th- your thoughts on that because you talk yeah. to a lot of people about yeah. what those solutions are, and I'd be happy, happy to hear from you. But again, I live in a world that's pretty practical. It's pretty daily. It's pretty um, Pollyannic, probably. (laughs) But I think, you know, I mean, how we do that, it needs to be about execution. 
It's not just like, okay, let's draft up another strategic plan for what that looks like. So what does healing look like in daily lives of women? And it's like, okay, so we need jobs. We need access to health care. We need housing long term. We need freedom to make choices where people aren't triggering us and holding authority over us. Really practical daily things that we all do. And for me, most of them are centered around community. Hmm. So, you know, we make healing oils. It's a million-dollar business for us, like producing and blending oils. It's practical. It has real spiritual depth to it. And it's something we can do daily, and it starts to influence who we are. And so that's just one example, but there's a million of those things. We light candles every day. We make candles every day. We ship candles every day. We sit in a circle together every single day and talk about what we're grateful for. That's what it looks like for me. I don't know what it looks like for you. Yeah. My response to that question would be the people that I see doing this most effectively are people who create these systems in their daily life or or even better rituals. Yes. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. You're saying every day we do this, every day we do this. And by building it into a business, which is wild to build that sort of ritual into a business, that's where – the healing comes from because healing doesn't happen in a day. It happens in, you know, a, a much longer period of time. And I would imagine you don't even really see the shift. It's it's not dramatic. Right. It's just that you look back and you're like, that's where I was and that's oh where gosh. I am today. Absolutely. You know, and I think people do get healing and miracle cure mixed up. Hmm. And I always, I try to define healing as the intentional walk towards wholeness, whatever that looks like for anybody. And we are all, we're all in search of that which is, again, the connection we all have because we all want that and we all need that. And there's all kinds of ways we try to walk towards that wholeness. So this year I wrote a book called Love Heals, and I was really trying to be able to articulate what does it look like in a daily way for individuals that I've met. One of my favorite stories was my sister who was an occupational therapist. She teaches at MTSU. She works with people with spinal cord injuries. And when she talks about it, she says the best thing we can do is create the time and the environment for healing to happen. Wow. The time and the environment. So in other words, how do I create the space and give people enough time? In other words, like you probably know what healing you need and you are probably drawn towards it. And you are probably saying like, if I, you know, if I could do this and this and this, I'd feel so much better. You know, I'm going to be vegetarian. I'm going (laughs) to walk three miles. Like we know. Yeah. So how can I, if I'm interested in helping you on your healing journey, create for you the space and the time you need to help make that happen? That's interesting. So it's not me saying, let me tell you something. You are not eating meat this morning. Yeah. And you're going to go do a three-mile march. That wouldn't feel healing. It'd be like going, I hate her. (laughs) (laughs) I am so tired. I just want a cup of coffee and lay in bed. But if you said, you know what I really want is I would love to do a week-long cleanse and turn my phone off for a week. And then I could say, what could I do to help you? I think that's a much more yeah. healing way of doing it. And totally. I loved her saying that because I think yeah. both as a founder and president of a company and as a priest, sometimes you get to where it's like, let me tell you what you need to totally. have healing. Well, it's interesting because as you were— That was my Darth Vader th- voice. That was a really good Darth Vader voice. As you were saying that, my immediate thought process was, oh, my gosh, like I maybe do need to eat a little bit less meat and I do need to walk three miles in, in a day. But I also feel this natural resistance to that. 
And so the idea of other people coming alongside me and and creating a, a sense of space for me to move towards that healing that I know that I want, even though I'm maybe a little bit resistant to, it's really refreshing and it's it's more inviting than anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's true for all the women I've served at Magdalene Thistle Farms. Authority is probably one of the biggest triggers in the world for them to relapse into oh. back to street life and drugs. It's like if you can imagine, you know, your first abuser has tons of authority over you and that triggers you every time. How traumatic prison is, right? Because yeah. it's a whole authoritarian model. Yeah. And so when I started, what I knew is that I hated authority. And I didn't know why. I didn't know that that was part of the whole gift bag of trauma. (laughs) But I knew that I didn't want to tell any of the women what to do. That's how I thought of it. Again, because I don't have really great language or counseling skills or anything. But it was like, just don't tell them what to do. And don't have anybody in authority live in the house. Hmm. Just let the women be in community together and then let them tell you what they need. That's good. Well, it was it was really good, and it was really funny because the, one of the very first conversations I had with the first five women who came in, we had a little disagreement in my mind about um, what were going to be the actual rules of the house. How are we all going to function together? And we had a little bit of disagreement, and I said um, what I thought, and then she said what she thought, and then I explained why I thought she was wrong. <laughs> And then she answered back in a really aggressive voice, I thought. And I said to her, I was like, there is no reason for you to get upset. And she stood over me, and she pointed her finger in my face, and she was shaking. And she goes, you have not seen me upset. And I was like, oh, I bet you're right, and we're absolutely doing it your way, and I'm good. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, when you trigger somebody, get ready. And that's that was a really good lesson for me in the first few weeks of this work. It was like, how about, Becca, you shut up and listen. I love that idea of approaching this with that sense of humility of saying, I'm going to have a sense of trust in these people. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I said these people again. Do you notice I didn't say anything back that time? I was being supplied. I went like this. That was mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's no. interesting. I, I'm trying to almost analyze what that use of, the, I, I guess it's a generalization and it's also a lack of closeness. You know, it, I don't know the first names of, the women you work with. I right. don't know their stories. And so there's maybe some importance to that. But I keep thinking that, like, you, you're you're a real entrepreneur spirit and you're a real creative spirit. And you would have a lot in common with all of us over at Thistle Farms. Yeah. Because that's what we try to do is let people have that creative spirit and that space to grow. I mean, I can't imagine you would do this if somebody was telling you exactly how you had to do it and where you had to be. and Oh, totally. Right. <laughs> that's why I like to be my own boss. Right. <laughs> and that is, that is, I think, what a lot of people who have gone through trauma as a kid need, too. Hmm. I'm not trying to analyze you, but, no. oh, my God, I can't imagine what you went through. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's fun it's that you have, I mean, I can, I just think that that creative spirit should be celebrated. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. You were talking about this intentional walk towards wholeness and how we all get to kind of have that intentional walk towards wholeness. What does that look like for you as somebody who is working in this space, but also, you know, your experience as a child being abused? How has this community that you're experiencing with with so many other people who share similar experiences, how has that shaped your walk towards wholeness? I really, really 
try to live what I preach. I don't very well sometimes, but I really try. So I loved when you talked about ritual because that is my whole life is ritual. I have bracelets on my arm made by women survivors. I've had these bracelets on my arm or something similar to that for years and years and years. And it's to remind me of things I do every day. Hmm. So they can change over the years. I don't have to be the same thing every time. But for the last couple of years, it's been if I can knit some every day, that's like my contemplative practice. Really? Look at my socks. You made those? Made them. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I wish y'all could see this. Um, (laughs) But knitting is very peaceful. It's, you know, at the end of the day, if you just sit in meetings for me or if I just am talking about justice or healing and I don't do anything, I go crazy. It's like at the end of the day, you can make a sock. And you just do that in silence or? Well, yeah, or like in a car line. I have it in my purse or, (laughs) you know, in between radio talks or on a plane to Dallas, whatever it is, you can knit. And it's a very relaxing thing. I can think about emails I've seen or prayers I wanted to say, but it's it's a contemplative. And to me, knitting is contemplative. Second one is walking. Like if I can walk, if I can make time to do that three miles from me or go out and just see a tree, walk somewhere where there's some kind of nature of any kind. I can kind of get myself in in the right place again, right? Yeah. And the third one for me, and this has been since about 2014, is drink a cup of tea. That's so good. those are my those are my three things. And um, last year, one of them was yoga. I haven't been able to get to yoga class as much, but I think if people can have really simple, easy things, it's like I'm happy and I feel yeah. generous towards other people. It's like I'm not like resentful or anything. It's like. You know, I've seen a tree, I knit a row, and I drank a cup of green tea. And I feel like, God, I'm so lucky. I love that those are all, they're all little things. And they're not even these things that outwardly look altruistic. They're things that are beneficial to you. And would I be correct in saying that they, they fill you up so that you can go out and love? Well, I think if you're present and awake that, all of it leads to justice work anyway. So Tell me more about that. So like I love the that. tea ended up that's how we opened up the Thistle Stop Cafe. I started thinking about tea. And then I started I mean, thinking about it as the oldest cultivated drink in the world. I wrote a mm. book called The Way of Tea and Justice when I started researching and realizing that human trafficking and tea are all connected and that we have to drink justice tea. So we had wow. to start a new tea company. I ended up working with women in the hills of Mexico creating moringa for tea. Like it led me on a whole path. So if you're doing these really simple things, sometimes it can lead you to a place. I mean, in my mind, if you're awake and present in them, it's like, oh, my gosh, this can be part of my justice work. This can be part of that idea that justice is our worship, yeah. and this is how we live. So they're not like, I do this, and then I go do the work. It's like, no, you're present in that, and your life unfolds from that. Like, I just don't believe in compartmentalization on that stuff, that knitting leads you to think about how the sheep are treated if you're paying attention. And then that leads you to whatever. But, I mean, that's why I started making bath and body care products. It was like I love taking baths. That used to be my thing. When I had little kids, it's like I had to lock myself in the bathroom. I mean, that was really where the whole thought about, like, if we could all just come together, the women that I'm serving, and make a body balm, bath salts, easy stuff, 
this could be really fun and look at our bodies again and remember our yeah. bodies. So I That's think of good. these, I think of little things as becoming part of how we do our worship. That's beautiful. One of the things that I know that you guys do is you work with refugees to build welcome mats. And I think that's incredible. Tell me about where that started for you, because I, I would imagine you've got a similar story. I know. And it, this is crazy because I did an article in People Magazine about this, and the woman said, every story starts with, I was walking in the woods. <laughs> and I was like, that is probably why that's one of the, like, if you walk in the woods, it's easy to hear your spirit speak to you. Like, hmm. here's what you need to be doing, really. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, Everybody's busy. Everybody's life is full. Everybody, blah, blah, blah. You know, but sometimes if you can take 10, 15 minutes out and just get quiet and walk in the woods, it's like, oh, my gosh, I know what's really on my heart. Yeah. Instead of everybody else's agenda on your heart, which is the other thing. You know this. Yeah. So I was walking in the woods, and I remembered a video I saw of, it's called 4.1 Miles. It's a beautiful documentary about the women coming from Syria with their kids on those boats. And they all had life vests on. And then they showed this image of this pile of life vests on Lesbos and Greece. I think I've seen that. Yeah, and they talk about the life jacket graveyard. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, human trafficking and refugees are completely tied together. There's more than, like, 12,000 kids missing. And, you know, there's unaccompanied minors. And it's awful. It's awful, awful, awful. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be fun to weave those life vests into welcome mats? Six months later, we're, we are fully funded. We had a beautiful donor out of California. We went and we started a justice enterprise, the first one for women in a refugee camp in Greece. That was successful. And we've, so we started in June of this year, nine weavers, amazing women. Oh my gosh, you would Did fall they have in a background in weaving or? No. They just learned it, they picked it up. Yeah, I brought a weaver from North Carolina <laughs> and two dudes who owned, um, a weaving shop or whatever it is in Greece, and they brought the looms down. We all, the people on the trip, were trained in, you know, how to um, set up looms and weave before we went, which, by the way, took forever. I bet. Ideas take about a minute and a half executing those ideas. Oh, man. The oh, worst. Lord. <laughs> I always like, don't think, don't think. And sometimes, and it's like, it's kind of fun, that whole learning a new journey. So I learned how totally. to weave. I yeah. learned how to weave. Yeah. And the so, mechanics of, of a loom, these things that don't carry over into any other aspect of your life, but there's there's value in that moment. Well, right. And when I was learning, I kept calling everything the, I don't know, the warp or the warp or the weep. I don't know. There were so many different words, and I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't even begin this language. Anyway, they've made over $100,000 on those welcome mats in wow. six months. And think about, like— it's the only transportation left in Ritzona camp is the tr- the buses that the women who are weavers are paying for the whole camp. That's the only way people are getting out of that camp to go to a, take their kids to the dentist, the doctor, to go see, do wow. I qualify for immigration? You know, I mean, it's crazy how really in my mind just kind of how desolate and depressing that camp feels and how hopeful like, again, when you do something just little, it can really lift spirits and really start people thinking. So we have, you know, several groups now that are saying, how can we duplicate or replicate what you're doing in Ritzona camp in Greece? So we have 14 other camps around that we need women weavers. Wow. So it's kind of fun. And they're weaving yeah. now. Now they're weaving not just life vests. They're weaving the blankets they came across the boats in that were just piled up and molded. So we got, there's a 
wonderful group called Dirty Girls that launder all this stuff. They were doing all the laundry for it. We've started upcycling all these ragged clothes that they're not using anymore. You can weave anything. Who knew yeah. for me? And it's like I've been amazed. I cannot wait to go back. That sounds like that's a big piece of what you're doing with Thistle Farms in general. You're taking things that are meaningless and forgotten and you're turning them into something incredible because these are life jackets that are just sitting in these piles. Right. Moldy blankets. That's ridiculous. I didn't even know that. And then, I mean, you guys are called Thistle Farms. Tell me about thistles. I know that's a big piece of the story. Right. Yeah. I mean, thistles are exactly the same thing. It's And it's not even just forgotten. It's like despised. Hmm. So things that are once despised becoming something valuable and beautiful. So thistles are considered a noxious weed. You know, they have a history of survival by brutality, really, if you think about the story of thistles and those prickly, awful, awful, awful stems. But they're also real survivors. You know, when there was a flood in Nashville in 2010, we had just bought the building over on Charlotte Avenue, 5122 Charlotte Avenue. And my husband and I drove over there, and the hole next to the building, it was just a big mud wash. I mean, there was a hole, there's a whole empty lot, and it was just full of mud. Out of that mud, there was one huge, probably six-foot-tall thistle that was surviving. <laughs> and I was like, Marcus, look at this. And he was like, you have to go over there and get your picture made with it. That's such a sign. <laughs> it was like so plain. But anyway, so when we started doing this work and going down meeting women in the alleys where they were sleeping, turning tricks, being abused, or if we went to prison and we looked in the chain-link fences, thistles were the only wildflower left. And so I thought, oh, we'll just call it thistles. Just call it thistle. And Thistle Farms is just... It was just, it was just a metaphor at that yeah. point. And then come to find out that Thistle makes beautiful paper that we could we could harvest it. We would never grow it. The farms that we are a part of never, never, never would grow Thistle. You can just harvest Thistle anywhere. And it makes beautiful paper. The down of a Thistle is beautiful. And we started really thinking about it, how just beautiful that soft purple center is. And while... You know, the thistle may remind you of the harshness of women who are on the streets. They Also, it should remind you of this soft, deep purple center. You know, I, I think of it like even Solomon in all his glory is not like that color of a thistle. And thistles are really, really healing. I didn't even know. Really? Yeah, it restores and detoxifies livers. Like we were doing all this huh. great work, you know, where people who have been drug addicts or abusing alcohol, like your liver's shot. You need thistle. <laughs> That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we're th- we became thistle farmers by accident, even after we named it. <laughs> that I had no idea. I really didn't. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, I am now a real thistle farmer." When I was out picking dead thistles, and it was like, who knew? That was just like such a <laughs> metaphor. And it's, I mean, like I'm telling you, our very first global partner was in Rwanda, 2008. We were over there. So this is 14 years after the. Um, horrific genocide where a million people are killed in 100 days. We went to the memorial site. 258,000 people are buried in it. And there were thistles growing out of it. And it was like, God almighty. It's incredible. (laughs) Incredible. Wow. Do you have a history with thistles? You know, truthfully, I probably didn't even know what thistles were. I didn't know what most flowers were. So you're city, city, city person. Well, I grew up in... Uh, like a farming town. There's no way you didn't. But know I wasn't what a, a farmer, was. and so maybe I was a city boy living in a farming town. Wait, what were your people doing? 
my parents worked uh, for the university. So there's a university in town, and then there's a farm. It's an agriculture town. And so you've kind of got this divide of Okay, where was this? Pullman, Washington. It's a small little town almost by Idaho. Oh, my gosh. So I bet there's tons of thistles. I know. I've got no connection. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, I was in Nebraska doing a Mm. conference, and— it was like a pastor's conference, but all these pastors were also farmers. Like they had these little churches, but they also had these farms. And this pastor stood up while we were doing this talk and it was like, you know, thistles are like really bad. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> you know, like this kind of a play yeah. and understanding. But he could not get past the fact that like we hate thistles. You cannot call this thistle farms. We hate them. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, there are farmers who like, you know, they've spent a huge chunk of time trying to dig out that huge, deep taproot, and you cannot get to it. It's awful. You know, and I'm like going, that's why you should, like, give us all of the down, the yeah. seeds out of it. Just get rid of it all so it doesn't, because one thistle can make a thousand more thistles in one flower. It's a, it's an amazing wow. flower. But, boy, whew, people do not like them. That's so funny. I think it almost brings even more beauty to calling yourselves thistle farmers because really it's just that they're misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Obviously, these farmers know what they like and what they don't like, but they don't get to have the experience that you're having at thistle farms. Well, and the idea that like it all, you know, everything in creation is part of our healing. And we go back to that word healing. And so given that there were probably no weeds in Eden, what's the good of thistles? What What is it? You know, and it's like there's bird seeds. The thistle seed of the bird is amazing. The paper from thistles, amazing. All the extract, you know, for if you go to Walgreens, you can find the extract from thistles. So how can you find something beautiful and useful in that part of creation is the question. Because mainly what you want to do is it's like it's such a pain in the butt. You want to really just pesticide it all. And then, of course, what that does to the land and the animals eating on the land. and You know, I mean, it's, so it's like how do we get there is the question. That's really good. That's uh, enough about thistles for the love of God. <laughs> we'll never talk about thistles again. <laughs> what are you excited about this year? What are the things that are leaving you hopeful and excited about thistle farms and, and what you're up to? Oh, that's such a good question. I stay excited. I mean, if, if you can get excited over knitting a pair of socks, you can imagine how happy the world is for you. Um, I'm excited that I am getting energy around starting to write again another book. Good. And I haven't had that in about a year or so. So the follow-up to Love Heals, I want to write a book called Making Love, Creating and Sustaining Love in Our Lives. And I want to talk about, like, what does intimate love look like after Me Too? Yeah. You know, I've been married 30 years, and I have this huge, huge um, gratitude towards my husband who's walked through the whole journey with me. And I keep thinking, like, there's a lot of lessons in there I've learned and maybe can share. And I want to talk about love, making love, like real love, in politics and economics and in the world of religion. I don't know about you, but I grew up Christian, and I grew up with this idea of C.S. Lewis, the four kinds of love. Yep. You know, and there's four different kinds of love, and it's like, now I'm really thinking about it and thinking, like, I don't think it's true. I think there's one love, and there's a thousand expressions, and we, again, we do these compartmentalizing ways of living that 
okay, so this is an agape love. This is a filio love. This is this kind of love. <laughs> you know, it's like, why do we do that? It's like, this is love, and it's deep and abiding, and it can have a thousand different expressions. But, like, my love of my husband even has a thousand expressions within that. I just really want to explore. I haven't started writing it yet, yeah. so it's all just ideas, but I'm, I'm very excited about, like, really saying, like, I think I am grown up enough now to have a real talk about love. That's good. And its sexual implications and its political implications and its religious implications and its economic implications. And I'm ready for it. I mean, uh, what more is anybody going to do to me now? I'm so old. <laughs> we'll have you back on the podcast to talk about that for sure because I love that. I love that in the same chapter you could theoretically talk about sex and politics. And I, I just think that's great. Well, I think – I mean, it's been an amazing year. It kind of does make me – it fires me yeah. up to think like – you know, Hollywood and, and Washington are just now understanding the lesson the church had to learn about 10 years ago, which is if you think your tribe is so freaking exceptional that the normal rules don't apply to you, that, you know, sexual abuse is not probably going to happen. It's inevitable. Yeah. And you keep that silence around it and you keep all the hush around it and you keep all this feeling of like, I can't have a feeling around it. I mean, our sex lives are our most secret and shameful part of all of our lives. I mean, it really is amazing. It still has so much power over us. So it's like, how do we have a safe conversation, not a pretend conversation? Yeah. Because yeah. people are not going to be honest. So let's don't pretend like we're going to have an honest conversation. How do we say we can honor the personal part of it, but also think about how can we be healthy together? It's definitely something that I think it's inspired a lot of men that I know to reanalyze what kind of ways that they've contributed to this unhealthy situation for women. And it's I've seen the women in my life be more willing or more able or more empowered to speak up about more and more. And I'm really, really hopeful about the conversation that's continuing to bubble up. And we create a, an actual newspaper called The Good Newspaper. And every single issue, we celebrate the people, ideas, and movements shaping the world for the better. And in this next issue that's about to come out, we specifically are talking about the Me Too movement and how it's terrifying, you know, in many ways. But I'm so hopeful that it's going to spawn conversations and meaningful change and, and just shine light in a lot of places where there hasn't been light in a long time. That's so great. I mean, because it's like we have to practice that conversation. That's the other thing, I think. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm we're gonna never going to do it, it on purpose. Right. <laughs> okay, here I go. I'm going to say this. Like, I'm going to try this out and see if, like, if I get shut down. Yeah. Or if people say, like, I really want to talk about that. Don't you? Can, we can talk about this. We can't talk about pornography. We can talk about when we've been abused, not when we've abused somebody and use them as a commodity. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain things that's like— I can talk about this. I can't talk about that. You hear people yeah. saying. And and what we have to do is we have to keep practicing so we get better at saying it is good news, like you're saying. Yeah. And every time that you speak up and say something, men or women, it gives the people around you a little bit more courage to say something as well. And I think we're seeing that on the women's side of things, especially right now. But for men, I think you just brought up this idea of like, you know, I can talk about when I've been abused, but not when I've been an abuser. I think that a lot of men are, are realizing that even in small and subtle ways, they've taken actions that are unhealthy and bad and abusive. And 
the slow ability for men to own up to that, I think, is maybe going to be something powerful that happens in 2018. And, you know, that includes women, too, who have also, Mm. you know, not obviously to the same degree or in any way, but the idea of manipulating a relationship or abusing it is part of a lot of folks' story. And owning it for all of us is like freeing. And, you know, we have a school for men who have been arrested for solicitation. We host a school for men. I mean, they get a sentence to us and 300 dollars for an eight-hour school where you learn about humanizing the woman that you bought and sold and you learn about the relationship between the sex and the drug industry and you learn about you know vice and what's going to happen to you if something happens again blah 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 and we have some of the women come and speak who are old school graduates and they talk about a couple of the women who I have talked to who have done these classes like they're ready to go in there and hate the dudes you know you were just Please don't think it was anything but money and access to whatever. And they find that there's a human on the other side, too, and that there's a lot of brokenness by the men and what they've gone through. And it's like, wow, that's pretty incredible for you to have compassion for somebody that bought you and abused you or sold you or whatever. But it's also, again, it's like we're going back. We're circling back to the beginning of this conversation. That's about healing. And it's like, wow, we can have compassion for everybody. I mean, I feel like that about the guy who first sexually abused me. I mean, like what forgiveness looks like. How can I be free from that, which which is what forgiveness is. And so how do I hold him accountable and forgive him? How do I have compassion and justice, justice, all those things? I mean, it is a learning curve, and I'm still learning, and that's, you know, 50 years ago. Hmm. I'd love to maybe end this conversation with just... <laughs> I would love to end this conversation. <laughs> I would love to end this conversation now. <laughs> you can't talk about that. This is now uncomfortable. No, this is good. I'm <laughs> I'm so glad we were able to come full circle. And I want people to come away from this conversation with something really actionable, something they can take with them into this day, this week, um, and lead towards more healing, maybe lead towards more wholeness. What's a tangible action step that, you know, people could take today that I can take today? I think the first thing is to take a big old deep breath. I really think we don't do that enough. And, you know, it's not like you need to go post on social media immediately. (laughs) Go post this. Or you need to um, do anything right now. I think the main thing is to remember who you are and say, um, I'm here, I'm alive, I love, I breathe, I'm okay. These stories trigger stuff in all of us. The story of human trafficking, it's a horrific, unbelievably huge story. The story of small communities loving each other and being together through healing is a hopeful story. We have 47 sister communities, little communities around this country, 27 global partners, you know, five houses here in Music City. So there's a lot going on, and people, you're welcome to go look at the website, order products, be a part of us. But the main thing is to think we are part of the healing we long for, and it starts with taking a breath. I'm speechless, y'all. Becca's story is so powerful, and she just invites people into that story so well. 
I feel like she gives her audience and her community and the people she interacts with this feeling that you've known her your whole life. And her words are old and familiar truths, but at the same time, it feels like they give birth to brand new ideas when you listen to them. Our lives are so connected and the pieces are somehow woven together. I come away from this conversation with Becca Stevens reminded that cups of tea can become an emblem for the sanctity of women and walking through the woods can become the birth of a beautiful idea and welcome mats can launch us towards more compassion for refugees or people who are marginalized. You should absolutely follow Becca Stevens and Thistle Farms across social media and I would also highly recommend checking out thistlefarms.org and, and maybe ordering yourself some essential oils or candles or you know, Becca's new book, which is amazing. It's called Love Heals, and it's delightful. If you're new to Sounds Good, if you just showed up for Becca's episode, we would love for you to stick around. If you resonated with this conversation, you would also appreciate our conversations with Grace Tyson and Sarah Lee. They are wonderful people making an incredible impact in a really similar space to Becca. You can find their episodes and all of our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers her production support. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at, at goodgoodgoodco. And here's a quick update on issue three of the good newspaper. Last week, we printed the newspaper. This week, we are shipping it out. And oh my goodness, it looks so good in person. You can see the cover on our website, goodgoodgood.co. And you can just order it yourself and then see it come out of your mailbox in like a week. So do it. Make sure to check it out, shop.goodgoodgood.co. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, or maybe just remember to take a deep breath and remember that you are alive. You have the ability to love. Sound good? 